Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Okay, now that was poignant. Yes, I saved that one for this part of our three-part epic extravaganza on the Hewlett-Packard story. Okay, and as uh, again, if you are just joining us... A couple guys named Dave and Bill started on tech stuff. A <laughs> yeah. uh, couple guys named Dave and Bill started a company in a garage in, in Palo, Palo Alto, Alto, California, California. for five hundred thirty-eight dollars and a drill press. Yes, no kidding. They really did that, and then uh, basically built it up into a powerhouse of a uh, electronical, electronical, electrical engineering feats of master. They were very suburban skill. Suburban, yes, I totally tripped <laughs> over that. Anyway, they made all sorts of really cool stuff that that helped other companies build their businesses. They made a lot of electrical uh, engineering measurement tools, oscillators, yeah. um, frequency measurement devices, all kinds of stuff that you or I would probably never lay hands on, see or care about. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about stuff that behind the scenes is very important, but to the consumer is mostly. Incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. It now, started in 39, made its way through the 40s and 50s, and grew exponentially. Ha right. ha. Um, and also, they began to uh, move into other fields, yeah. medical, technology. Computers and, in and, the 60s. Yes, and computers. And when we were talking about computers in our last episode, we were talking about how they were computers. They were there to help people compute things. Yeah, they were talking about they bus- business computers, research computers, that sort of thing. Not something, again, for the consumer. Uh, we're talking about computers that are the size of say a person's desk not not a desktop large calculators yeah but um uh now we're getting into the 80s mm-hmm. and the reason why we decided to stop our last podcast at 1979 is because in 1980 that's when HP uh, launched its very first personal computer for for the personal computer market Right. Before they, they released a very large calculator that got called uh, the first personal computer. And but, that was, but it was a scientific calculator. It wasn't a, a device meant to run programs and have an operating system and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's not a computer. It, it is a computer literally. Yeah. But it is not a computer in what we in the 21st century consider a computer. Right. Um, so in, in marketing terms, that's what they had called it. But yeah, this this is when we're getting into the time of real... Uh, of modern personal computers. Yeah. So 1980, it launches the HP 85. And it had uh, input-output ports that allowed it to connect to other computers and also to various electronic instruments. So uh, not, again, not necessarily something for the average consumer, but we're slowly moving that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1981, we get yet another calculator. So I expect Mr. Pellett will dance around the room and squeal with like a little joyful I like calculators. I, I apparently you do. It's the HP 12C. It's a business calculator. Yeah, the the 12 the funny thing about the 12C is now this this device was introduced in 1981. They still sell them. Yeah. Uh they're they're tiny devices uh about the size as we would expect a pop, pocket calculator to be now. Um it but it was designed to be a financial calculator. Um 
so this is kind of kind of interesting because again uh HP had been had, was started as a company that made electro uh, electronic testing equipment so now they're really moving like making a dedicated push into other areas of business yeah and trying to reach out to other business customers who might want their products because again if you've listened to our previous podcast on HP you know that one of the uh foundation uh, uh Parts of their philosophy is that you have to continue to grow as a business, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or you perish. And the best, and the best part is, it had a gold tone, so you knew it was good. Um, Nineteen eighty-two, they introduced the HP seventy-five C, a handheld computer. Yes, it's actually a, a mobile computing device, and uh, you know it's kind of interesting. It, it, if you look at it today, I mean, granted, it's, it looks bulkier than what we think of as a mobile computer now. But HP really had – they were ahead of their time, really, but they had really predicted the whole mobile computing mm-hmm. um, uh, movement, although at this point ha, – Movement. Ha-ha. Uh, I see what you did Because there. they're mobile. But although at this point, the they're much more primitive than the ones we use today. The HP 75C, however, even had input-output drives, so you could connect it to a printer or a digital cassette drive. Mm-hmm. Remember d- digital cassettes? These are yeah. not not like discs. <laughs> you actually stored things on tape magnetically. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was uh, it was ten inches long, about twenty five point four centimeters um, by five inches by one inch. So it was yeah. only you know two point five four centimeters thick. It was um, it was. I'm a glad little bit, I have that memorized because was, that's about the only <laughs> metric conversion I have memorized. It was a bit larger than uh, 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 your typical. Calculator at that point. 48K of ROM, yep. 16K RAM. You know, it ran basic and VisiCalc. And, and, and you could use it as a clock or an alarm for appointments. It only cost $995. When Mickey's big hand is on the digital one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, in 1982, they also, HP introduced within the company itself an electronic mail system where you could send messages to other uh, HP employees. Mm-hmm. So, uh, oh, and darn it. Yeah, no, that's right. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what? But, but the electronic mail was all internal. Yes. It wasn't, this wasn't something where, you know, HP pioneered email. Mm-hmm. Uh, email actually had existed for a little while in other research facilities. But this was a, it was a pretty big move for a company to do that. Now, granted, HP at this point is a very large company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's continued to expand. It's got more than 50,000 employees. So it was very uh, important that they develop a way to communicate between different departments and within departments because it's getting too large to just rely on you know paper all the time. Yeah. And frankly, it's inconvenient to staple notes to people's foreheads as they walk by. Yeah. I have had many people talk to me about my habit of doing that. Uh, now, in I'm ni- just pointing it out. In 82, they also introduced the HP 9000. Ah, the HP 9000. It was a mainframe computer, but a desktop mainframe. Now, when you Wait, hear th- what? when you hear the term mainframe computer, what you're supposed to think about is a computer that's so large it fills up an entire room. Yeah, I think of uh, specifically of the uh, digital Vax. Yeah. Oh, I remember the Vax. Yeah, so you're talking about these enormous computing machines that 
uh, that you know it, you'd open up a door and you're looking at a computer. That's pretty much what these things look like. Now the HP 9000 was a, a departure from that. It was a computer that had mainframe capabilities, one that was just as powerful as say a supercomputer from the 1960s, but it could fit on a desktop. Now this is a really good uh, illustration of a an observation made by um, uh, an Intel co-founder. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, of course, referring to Moore's Law here. Yes. And Moore's Law is really an observation. If you've listened to our podcast, you've heard us talk about it a number of times. It's a law in quotes. It's yeah. a quote-unquote law. But the observation essentially is that about every two years or so, and the time changes depending upon when you look at this law, but about every two years, the number of discrete uh, elements that can be fit upon a square inch of silicon wafer uh, doubles. So what that means to the layman is that the number of transistors on a microprocessor tends to double uh, every two years, which means that you can cram more transistors onto the same space as you could two years ago, mm-hmm. and thus devices can get smaller while maintaining a certain level of power. So by 1982, it was possible to build a machine that fit on a desktop that would have the same amount of power as a 1960s supercomputer. Super. Which is, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Now, of course, today, the computers that you run out and buy in the store have more power to them than some of those supercomputers did back in the 1960s. You know, you could buy a a netbook that has more power than some of those supercomputers. Oh, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, this was, uh, this was a good illustration of that, that, that observation. You can buy a smartphone. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, but that's the thing about Moore's law, right? I mean, right. it's exponential growth. So if if Moore's law were not correct, then we wouldn't be able to do those things. But it's so far held out to be true. Although, of course, every single year that passes, someone predicts will be the final year for Moore's law to be able to hold true because we keep thinking we're going to run into some sort of fundamental obstacle that will prevent us from continuing, and yet engineers figure out a way around it yeah. because they're crafty. That and because they want, I think. Uh, haven't we established that they generally want to try to – it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when you try to make it work. Right, yeah. It becomes one of those things where you know, engineers in general and, and even companies in particular will dedicate a lot of resources to keep it going because you never – I don't think anyone wants to reach the point where they say we've reached the end of, of what Moore's Law has predicted. We mm-hmm. cannot – we cannot continue at that pace. It doesn't necessarily mean when Moore's law does come to an end, whenever that may be, it doesn't necessarily mean that we, that progress will stop. It may just slow down significantly. Right. Right. Anyway, we got way off track there. 1983, they introduced the HP 150 touchscreen computer. Yes. Which, uh, you know, if you think about it, the, the touchscreen PC in 1983. Yeah. Yeah, we're still talking about – I mean, think about this. HP is, has managed to launch a, a mobile device much earlier than mobile computing takes off. They mm-hmm. launched this touchscreen computer way before we start seeing a lot of these touchscreen interfaces come out, really ahead of its time. Uh, the the HP 150 also had a keyboard, so it wasn't exclusively touchscreen, mm-hmm. but you could select items on the screen by touching them. Right. So, uh, again, kind of uh, predicting the craze. Now, granted – Almost three decades too early, but uh, but it's still pretty impressive. And uh, 1984. Oh, you uh, you didn't mention one thing about uh, Mr. Hewlett. 
1983. Which uh, oh, are you going with the awards? Yes, I did well, not. I did not include the awards. I didn't. Well, we don't have as many as, as uh, in our uh, Texas Instruments podcast. Right. But uh, he did get the National Medal of Science. Yes, in 1983. But you were going to mention the uh, the big advance in 1984. Actually, two of them, both coming from the the graphic recording division. Yeah. Um, specifically, I was going to talk about the thermal inkjet printer. Uh, that's that's the year that HP introduced that idea, and um, I guess that's where the name ThinkJet comes from. Yes, right? ThinkJet comes from thermal inkjet, and this was a new way of printing. Now, the major kind of printer that was on the market before this was a dot matrix printer. Oh man, those things were loud. Yes, very loud. When that when they were printing, you you pretty much couldn't hear yourself think. Uh, you had to sort of train yourself to ignore the noises, yeah, um, as well as the crunchy noises of the paper getting caught up in spokes and things. It was not always pleasant. That's all right. I had a daisy wheel. Ah, uh, even better. Whack, 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 whack. So they do have um, uh, earlier on the podcast we were talking about how. Uh, sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. Um, about how HP has uh, descriptions and photos of these items on their history part of their website. Um, it's interesting. They have a uh, they have a sound sample of the ThinkJet. Yeah, and uh, it's funny because the uh, the literature surrounding it talks about how much quieter it is. It, it's not what you would call quiet. It's just it's quiet. It's whisper quiet. <laughs> it's quieter. Yeah. It's not as loud. How about that? Yes. So, uh, yeah, that was a big deal. And you it said, was. you said two. Was there a second part to that that you wanted to talk about? Yes. That was, that's all I, I jotted down. Oh, well, uh, yeah, there was a, another big printing advance right about the same time. The laser jet. Oh, the laser jet. Yes. I didn't have that down. Yeah, that's the laser jet. I missed that. I think jet and laser jet were both, uh, both came out in the same year. Um, now, the ThinkJet was something that you might – would be obviously – well, maybe not obviously, but a less expensive um, device. But the LaserJet uh, started in 1984 at $3,500, and it was a completely different kind of printing. I mean, this was – now, talk about quiet. This is going to be a lot quieter than that inkjet printer. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is also the point where uh, you know the computers are becoming more common sites in offices and in and they will be in homes uh in a very very short period of time. Yeah, well 1984 so, is also the same year that the Mac uh well the Macintosh, I should say. Yes. The Macintosh computer premiered in 1984. And we had the IBM PC. Yeah, IBM PC had been out for a while and of course, you know, Apple had some computers out for a few years before the Macintosh mm-hmm. and even the Commodore 64 which debuted in 1982. Mm-hmm. So 1984 the personal computer is starting to gain ground. Yep, and so you know you you might have a, a ThinkJet in a in a home because it's a less expensive printer. Mm-hmm. Uh, still a lot of dot matrix and Daisy Wheel out there, but uh, LaserJet was what you might see in an office. Yeah, and uh, talk about a popular product. Of course, the line still exists today. Um, it was uh, in '84 too, I believe. That's when HP made Fortune's list of the hundred best companies to work for. Number seven on that list. So yeah. it's another indication that HP took. Uh, taking care of its employees very seriously. Yep. Do you have anything for 87? Because my next thing is 88. Oh, well, I had uh, uh, had 86 when HP introduced the RISC uh, architecture. Right. That's reduced, uh, reduced in- instruction set computing 
uh, which is uh, it's it's a type of architecture for micro uh, processor for many computers, yes. um, and it's typically less expensive than uh, other architectures. And it's also, uh, according to many people, um, a better uh, way of computing than CISC, which is yep. its uh, its counterpart. main counterpart. Yep. But uh, um, that's a that goes back to the. Uh, Power PC versus Intel days. Yeah, you, when you can used get to some, hear that. You can get some. Much. You can get some uh, some debate going upon. It's funny because when you when you bring this up to computer engineers and computer scientists, uh, you can get into to some pretty crazy debates on the various uh, benefits and and uh, and problems with various kinds of architecture. Mm-hmm. Most of us just say. I just want my computer to go fast and do things. I don't <laughs> I don't care how it does that. <laughs> oh, and we didn't talk about the integral com- computer. In 1985 they they released an all-in-one. I didn't find it very integral yeah. for the podcast. And it uh anyway, it's also <laughs> rather heavy looking. Yeah. They also came out with a number of different uh uh, scientific calculators like the HP 18C yeah, and 32S I, and, and 86 and 89. I gave up on the calculators. There's a lot of them. But, I couldn't. I couldn't keep up. But it was it was uh, a lucrative line of business for them. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, in 87, they began their hardware recycling program, mm-hmm. which is again ahead of its time. Yeah, one of those things again about HP. If you've listened to the previous podcast, HP wanted to be a good corporate citizen. So trying to do responsible things and not, uh, you know, not contribute too much to pollution and other problems. In fact, there are a lot of initiatives that HP launched uh, that help make it a – at least put it in light of a – as a company that is uh, is concerned about the environment, uh, including things like tracking greenhouse gases. That, that happened later on. Uh, in 1988 – oh, I'm sorry. You've got a point here. Oh, just a small point yeah. that uh, Jonathan thought was long dead, and you might have too if you listen to the parts one and two. Um, in in the first part, we talked about the birthplace of HP, the garage. Yes. Um, after uh, Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard moved out of the house where the garage was, they left it to other owners and tenants over the years. But in 1984, HP decided that uh, the garage was significant. Um, and probably, I think, because of something that you mentioned before, too, other companies looked to HP as a leader. And they started, I, I think, the the mythos of the whole uh, starting a tech company in your garage thing. I mean, it's been done by others. Apple and Google, you mentioned, uh, Microsoft. Origin Games started out of a garage. Well, and, and many other businesses have too. But I think HP decided at that point that, look, other people have done this so much that we want we to keep track of this. So they decided to have the, uh, that the garage – would be on the list of historic landmarks. So they actually started pursuing landmark status. And in 1985, uh, the Palo Alto Historic Resources Board named the garage a, a city landmark. Yeah, we'll get into more of that in a little bit. Yep. Because I've got 88, and the next part of that story happens in 89. Yeah, in 87, California did the same. Really? Uh, but I, have it, I have California naming it a California historical landmark in 1989. Oh, okay. I, my timeline said it, August seventh, eighty seven. See, it's sometimes you these. sometimes you run into little differences and along these timelines. Uh, but yeah, it's it it's actually now a national landmark. Yes. Um, originally it was Palo Alto, then California, now national. Uh, yeah, this little bitty 
shack where right. HP started. And you could see it on Google Maps if you'd like. Yeah. Well, in 1988, uh, HP uh, launched the DeskJet printer series, which was its first mass market inkjet printer. Yes. So um, they've started to to bring the costs of manufacture down so they can bring down the cost of the actual uh, units and start selling them to to uh, to consumers mm-hmm. because before it was you know kind of like the the early adopters who were getting hold of these early uh, uh, ThinkJet printers mm-hmm. but it wasn't until we, the DeskJet series that started to fall into the range of the average consumer because mm-hmm. you know early adopters tend to have a lot more uh, money to play with. <laughs> Yeah. Because it's expensive to be an early adopter. Um, and at this point in 1988, the company is doing quite well. The revenues are now at $9.8 billion, mm-hmm. and they have more than 87,000 employees. That's kind of large. Yeah. So you've got uh, the historical landmark thing happening either in 87 or 89, or perhaps both, because, you know, government. Well I, <laughs> well, I got my information from HP Timeline, so they have it listed as both. I would I would think that eighty nine is is it because I had it on on that one so huh, interesting and uh, well, so but they did get a plaque in eighty nine that that declared the garage the birthplace of Silicon Valley. Uh, there is a monument there with a sandstone rock in the front yard, um, and uh, just well we we can get to that later. But they they you can actually go by and see the plaque. It is there at the uh, at the uh, the place. You can't go into the garage. No. Um, I, I could imagine just these people constantly coming out of that house yelling, get off my lawn, you nerds. That'll come up later. Okay, so in uh, ni- 1991. <laughs> the DeskJet 500C. Yeah, which was a color printer. Mm-hmm. So this is the early days for color printers for the consumer market. Um, they also created the HP 95LX, which was a palm top PC. I love how these these terms get bandied about. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that every single product is – well, not every single. Most of the products are HP, couple of numbers, a couple of letters. Yeah. Still so confusing. Like if you if you started rattling them off to me at this point, even though we've just talked about them, I'd be like, um, was that a calculator? No, silly. That was an oscillator. <laughs> Wah, wah. 1992, John Young retires. Now, if you were listening to our last podcast, you would have heard about John Young becoming the president and CEO mm-hmm. of HP. Uh, so he retires, and a man named Lou Platt becomes the new president and CEO. Uh, and then in 1993, Packard finally retires. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hewlett had retired several years earlier, but Packard retires in 93 as chairman. So uh, Platt then becomes the new chairman. So he's the president, CEO, and chairman of the board. Now, this is when um, that becomes sort of common for the leader of HP from that point forward. Mm-hmm. You start to see a lot of the HP leaders uh, assume all three of those roles. Yeah. So um, now we finally have it where both of the founders have stepped back from the company. Uh, and in 1993, the company introduces the Omnibook 300 Dun, dun, dun. It was a portable computer. It weighed three pounds. Not mm-hmm. that heavy, really. Um, and kind of a predecessor for the laptops that we'd see later on. I mean, it had a folding uh, form factor just like a laptop did. Uh, and, you know, not, you know, almost like a predecessor to netbooks in a way. Yeah. Because, uh, again, it was supposed to be extremely portable. I, I would like to point something out here. Yep. Um, at this point, I would argue that HP still sees itself as a business to business company. They're making products for primarily for businesses. Um, 
yeah, they, they do have their eyes on the consumer. They're selling products to consumers. But I think they still sort of uh, – they're making a lot of these products for people who are using their stuff in companies. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's a, a wise move on their part because that's a, a lucrative market for them. Um, but they will, be, they will be branching out in the near future. I just wanted to point that out. Um, they, they did begin work on a 64-bit microprocessor architecture with Intel. Yeah, this was in, an interesting in partnership. Yeah, yeah. So they partner with Intel to work on this, uh, this architecture designed for 64-bit microprocessors. If you listen to our 32-bit versus 64-bit podcast, then you know more about that. Uh, if you haven't, we'll wait. <laughs> Welcome back. The HP uh, then produces the world's brightest LED. For no reason. No, no, that's, no. Not, that's not true. Well, remember we talked about HP Labs. Yeah. Um, and that was a division of the company uh, created uh, decades before to come up with new and uh, innovative uses of technology. So I think that was that had a lot to do with it. But they they found um, uh, applications in uh, a number of things like message signs and cars and traffic signals. So that that's one of those things. And uh, this is when we started seeing the office jet, you know, the all-in-one fax, copier, printer, latte machine. Oh, yeah. Except maybe not with the latte machine. Um, but that was the uh, – what HP says is the world's first of those mass market uh, all-in-ones. Yeah, which, you know, you see a lot of those today. Yeah. Very compact ones now too. Yeah, but that, that was aimed at the home office. Right, yeah. The idea being that, you know, if, if you only you only have so much space – and most people don't have space to have a printer, a copier, and a fax machine all together. It would yeah. be much easier to conserve that space and have a one all-in-one uh, unit, which is what HP did. In '95, they created the Pavilion PC, and yep. that's really when HP went after the consumer market. Yeah, and that's what it, that that's sort of what I meant. Before they were they weren't really aiming for that market. They were. They were just sort of hitting it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so, now they're going, hey, all you home people, we make stuff for you too. Yeah. Listen here, home chicken. Home chicken. You need yourself a computer. And then um, there was the PDA that they released in 98, the Jornada. Uh, yes, the Jornada Personal Digital Assistant. For those yes. of you who don't remember what PDAs are, look at a smartphone, take the phone part out, uh, reduce its ability to run apps dramatically, and that's a PDA. Uh, also, what... Just jumping back really quickly because oh. there's a couple of things we need to talk about. Uh, 95, that's when Packard published the HP Way. Oh, right, right. And we talked about the HP Way before. Yeah. And that was something that was inside the company. It was company information about how – basically a, a plan how they wanted the business to be run. Yeah, kind of a guideline. And then – so he publishes a book that really expands upon that and also just talks about the experiences of creating this company. But in 96, he passes away. Yeah. So Packard, uh, the one of the – the co-founders of Hewlett Packard passes away in '96. Uh, so in 1999, Lou Platt retires, and here's where we get into some thorny controversy and problems with Hewlett Packard. Really, yeah. uh, you know, Packard had just passed away in '96, and then three years later, '99, Lou Platt retires, and the new uh, president and CEO elected to HP is Carly Fiorina. Mm-hmm. Now, '99 is also when uh, again, this goes back to our very first episode. They used to make uh, electronic measuring equipment. Yeah. Um, HP decides to spin divest itself of that, yeah. and it spun off uh, a company that handled the, the measurement uh, equipment, chemical analysis, and the medical stuff. Remember, they acquired a medical company yep. a long, long time ago. 
and they decided that um, they, they would become a, its own company, and, and now that company is called Agilent Technologies. Right. Um, but it, the, uh, the divestiture uh, finished in the year 2000. Meanwhile, to to jump back over to Fiorina for a minute, uh, her tenure at HP is one of those that is sort of steeped in, I don't know, controversy is probably not the right word, but there there's been some pretty heavy criticism directed toward Fiorina and her the way she led HP. Yes. Now, I want to say first of all, she had an incredible burden placed on her because uh, one of the one of the the co-founders had passed away. Um, she was looking at the co- at a company that was <clears throat> very much accustomed to doing things a very particular way, and perhaps in her mind she felt that this was a sign of complacency, mm-hmm. and that in order to really be a successful company, they were going to have to try and break out and do new things that were that you know maybe were outside the comfort zone of the company. But you can argue that you know some of the best leaders in industry had that same sort of idea. Yeah. You know, you can't I, – I think some of the criticism is, is well-founded, and I think some of the criticism might be a little exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, there are certain results that you cannot argue with, and one of those is that during Fiorina's tenure at HP, the stock price dropped dramatically. Yes. Um, now, its high was around $74 before Fiorina took over, but by the time she did take over, it was right around um, – $51 or so. Mm-hmm. And by the time she left, it was around $21. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was a dramatic drop. That's why when I, I made that joke in the previous podcast about if you could travel through time, you would want to go back and buy the HP stock when it launched at $16 a share and sell it at 99 when it was at its highest uh, point just before um, uh, Lou Platt decided to retire. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about the decisions that Fiorina made. Uh, she actually uh, ended up on a uh, list made by Condé Nast's portfolio mm-hmm. uh, that was called the 20 Worst American CEOs of All Time, hmm. which is, that's an ouch right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. She had come from AT&T and Lucent Technologies, by mm-hmm. the way. That's where she was before she came over to HP. And that was another big point of contention was that she was the first CEO to come from outside of HP. Right. She had not been working there and then grown from within. She was brought from outside. She actually uh, ended up prevailing over an internal candidate to become the president and CEO. And, um, and, and this sort of marks the beginning of a very uncertain time in HP's uh, uh, existence, which extends all the way up to present day. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's 1999. Uh, we'll go more into what happens with uh, Fiorina in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and do but, you have anything for 2000? Well, I was just going to tell. I'm, I was just going to point out that yeah. um, uh, Fiorina took over in 1999. But the, with the spinoff of Agilent Technologies, <laughs> um, HP was getting away from some of the core businesses that made it the company that it, it is now. Yeah, and that was one of the things that Dave Packard had set aside as important yeah. to stick with what you know and, and uh, find ways that the company can make contributions, but at the same time, reach out and, and grow. And one, on the one hand, you say, well, this has now grown so big that it really belongs as its own company. It's, we, we obviously see a lot of growth in computing, personal computing, business computing, 
uh, we're doing well here. Let's let's stick with it and get rid of these guys and let them be their own thing. But at the same time, you go, well, at the same, you know, you've, you've got this. It's strong and it could survive and be a, a thriving part of, of HP. So they kind of the, – the company kind of broke with tradition uh, both in hiring a, a CEO who was not – brought up within HP culture and in spinning off it, some of its core from the founding of the company, core businesses. Yeah, and things just got a little you – know, things get worse from there on out. Uh, 2001, mm-hmm. Hewlett passes away. Mm-hmm. So now both the founders have passed away. Uh, and meanwhile, the company creates HP Services, which is a consulting branch. Yes. Um, it's meant to provide support and solutions for mostly you know, enterprises, mm-hmm. big businesses, when they're looking for things like network support and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's an, again another departure from HP's core. They're not you know they're they're mainly a products company, not a services company. Right. And then that year, HP stocks fall really sharply. But uh, to be fair, the entire market in 2001 suffered quite a bit, especially uh, after September 11th. Yes, uh, yes. The terrorist attacks on September 11th took a uh, had had far-reaching implications in multiple avenues, including uh, the world of finance. Yes. And so uh, the technology industry took a, a big hit in 2001. Mm-hmm. And of course, HP had its own uh, personal corporate tragedy as well mm-hmm. um, with the passing of, of Bill Hewitt. Yeah. So, in, so it was it was a difficult year for the company. It was. And in 2002, HP acquired a company called Indigo, which is uh, help its digital publishing branch, mm-hmm. which again, you're, you know, it seemed kind of interesting compared to what HP had been doing up to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also start getting into, in a big way, they start conducting uh, research and development in the field of nanotechnology. Um, and then there was... A merger that <laughs> I remember this one of the most heavily criticized mergers. Like it's right up there with with uh, AOL and Time Warner. Yeah. Uh, as far as the criticisms, now I would argue that Time has been kinder to this merger than some of the other ones we've heard about in the past. But the, the initial short, remarks, yeah, the short term implications of this merger were not good, but. It, I'm dancing around it, but HP merged with Compaq mm-hmm. to become a, a, this mega PC company. Yeah, and uh, there were a lot of people, a lot of industry analysts, a lot of shareholders. Uh, there were people, uh, uh, the the children of the founders who objected to this merger. Yeah, said that this was a bad idea, that it was going to cost the company too much money, that it just didn't make any sense. And uh, as a result, the stock price you know, don't dip down again, and uh, Fiorina ended up getting even more criticism directed toward her for this merger. Now, in in 2011, at least the early part of 2011, the stocks for HP had improved quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, back up to pretty much the the era before Fiorina took over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second half of 2011 is a totally different story. We'll get into that. But but the the improvement of the stock prices as well as the revenues generated through this merger have sort of played out in such a way that the merger doesn't look like it was such a bad idea. It was just it was a long it was a long play. It yeah. wasn't a short term gain thing. So it may be that some of that criticism was not completely warranted. 
Uh, now, I am not a financial genius by any stretch of the imagination, or else I would be um, listening to podcasts and not doing them. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, so I can't really comment on this because I, you know, I honestly I don't have enough insight into it. I can mm-hmm. only mention about the analysts. <clears throat> but um, moving on to 2004. Uh, by that time, HP was number 11 on the Fortune 500 list. So mm-hmm. clearly the company's doing something right, right? Yep. And that's, that's when it, uh, went all in on the consumer market too. Yep. Um, they had a whole bunch of new consumer devices, including, uh, uh, flat panel TVs. Yeah. Plasma and LCD televisions. Yep. Both of them and the HP Digital Entertainment Center. Yes. And they partnered with Apple. Yep. They of made all the people. Apple iPod from HP. I don't remember and that at all. I remember it, and I remember it making my eyes bug out and going, really? Yeah, I have no memory of this. <clears throat> and uh, I, I didn't mention something for 2000, but it's all right because I can roll it in here. In 2000, HP had finally purchased the house at 367 Addison Avenue, and in 2004, they announced that they would be renovating it and uh, rebil- rehabilitating the house, garage, and the shed. Um, which Apparently. it has successfully done. It basically is a company-owned uh, property, which they are basically keeping up. And they say it, it it looks very much as it did back in 1939 when uh, Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard started the company, which yeah. I think is, again, I think it's kind of cool that they're showing that uh, – uh, devotion to their history and tradition. It was definitely in dire need of rehabilitation because in the late 70s it got into this whole punk glam thing and it just fell in with the wrong crowd. So I'm glad it finally got the help it needed. Uh, in um, Moving on, in 2005, mm-hmm. HP acquired a company called Cytex Vision. Which, oh, I remember uh, that. Yeah, that was a company that uh, made printers that could print in super wide formats. So yeah. like really wide posters or banners or signs. Billboards even. Billboards, yeah. We're talking about like stuff that, you know, when you look out there and you see something that's a huge poster, mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of the the business this company is in. If you've ever been to an industry convention or driven by one, mm-hmm. um, that's the sort of stuff we're talking about. Like I think of things like CES and E3. Right. I mean, you just see these banners everywhere. And, and it's companies like Cytex Vision that print those up. And uh, February 2005 was when Fiorina was forced to resign from Hewlett-Packard. The board of directors had had enough. They felt that the stock price was uh, really just not where they wanted it to be. The shareholders were unhappy. The merger with Compaq at that point was not paying off, but it was, again, early days for that. And so they decided to um, to give her the boot. Uh, she would later get into politics uh, she actually ran for a Senate seat in California and did not win that, but um, still very active in the political arena. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, for the for a short time, Bob Wayman acted as the interim CEO, but then they hired on Mark Hurd to become the president and CEO. And in uh, the following year, in 2006, he also becomes the chairman. So again, we have a president, CEO, and chairman all in one all those roles held by one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2006 was a big year. Uh, the HP acquired Voodoo PC. Oh, I remember that too. Yeah, it's Voodoo a PC gaming company. Yeah, exactly. They they produced high end uh, gaming rigs, mm-hmm. so kind of like Alienware, you know, that sort of thing. Like right. The, the the super fast, uh, which was purchased by models. Dell. Yep. So. Uh, uh, trying to really reach out to the consumer market to an even greater extent than it had already. Mm-hmm. 
They also acquired a company called Mercury Interactive Corporation, which was a business software company. Uh, and then there was a story that broke in Newsweek. Do you remember this story about the spying, the internal spying at HP? Oh, yes. Okay. So this story said that uh, that the HP chairwoman, Patricia Dunn, uh, this was before Heard has become the chairman, mm-hmm. but that Patricia Dunn had hired a security team because there were stories leaking out from the executive level at HP and uh, they were reaching the media. Primarily, they were reaching CNET. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of those stories was about um, Fiorina, the board being unhappy with Fiorina and wanting to get rid of her. This was before she was forced to resign. Right. And HP at the time denied that there were any such talks. And then about a week later, Fiorina was fired. And uh, meanwhile, Patricia Dunn was very upset that such sensitive information was leaking, and so she hired a security team to kind of find out what was going on. And allegedly, the security team consisted of private investigators who were spying on HP employees and on journalists. Mm -hmm. So there was a big scandal that broke because of this spying, saying, you know, the HP board doesn't trust HP employees and that this mistrust is fundamentally against the principles that HP was founded upon mm-hmm. and that, you know, it just was uh, unconscionable. And Dunn would actually resign. That's when Mark Hurd became the chairman. Uh, and the state of California actually filed charges against Patricia Dunn, but the case was later dismissed. So it never went to trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then 2007... HP introduces the TouchSmart PC, which was an all-in-one computer with a touchscreen interface. Yeah. Uh, again, 2007 being a little early for that. We're just starting to see these kind of touchscreen computers start to gain widespread acceptance in, uh, well, started in the late part of 2011 and continuing into 2012, especially when we start seeing things like Windows 8, uh, uh, the preview, I guess you could say, of Windows right. 8, right. which really seems to be geared toward that kind of interface. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not that'll end up being successful, we can't say because it's too early for us yet. But uh, also in 2007, HP did something really, really interesting with inkjet technology. Yeah, no, I, I think this is funny because they're using inkjet technology, but they've already spun off their medical unit. But as it turns out, they, they're using printers to uh, achieve a medical purpose. Basically, by creating a, a method of drug delivery through a skin patch that can be printed with medicine using yeah. a printer. So it, it can release these controlled dosages to the skin, and there's no need for an injection or to take a pill or anything like that. Right. So very creative use of that technology. I thought that was pretty interesting. I agree. Uh, in 2008, they introduced the HP 2133 Mini Note PC which is a sort of like a kind of like a netbook, a very lightweight mobile computing device. Uh, they also acquired a company called Electronic Data Systems or EDS, which is a technology services company. Can I finish? Can I finish? It's Ross Perot's company. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, uh, so uh, hey kids, <clears throat> ask your parents who Ross Perot was. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Ross, Ross Perot was Trump before Trump was Trump. <laughs> And in uh, 2009, of course, uh, it, ac- it acquired uh, 3Com. Yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> which this is the one that made you scratch your head. Yeah. yeah. So 3Com, um, that would be an interesting story in and of itself. Uh, by by 2009, basically, it was a, a networking um, company. Yeah, they, mostly network switching technology. Yeah, they had been involved in modems. They had in, been involved in all kinds of uh, uh, 
really kind of innovative stuff, uh, handheld technology in the 90s, uh, internet-enabled stuff. And then they started having some problems and uh, they got into a different – They some of their other background businesses became the ones that they were successful for. So they really faded from the public light. But um, – HP picked them up. They said, you know, we, we want this technology. And, and so far, um, as far as I know, it, it hasn't been a bad deal for them. The next one was more troublesome. Yeah, we'll get into that in a second. Uh, but in 2009, <laughs> they also introduced a web-connected home printer, uh, yes. which you're starting to see more of today now as well, where you, you can create a printer. You know, you have a printer at home, and you can, even if you're on the road, you can print stuff to your home printer just by connecting through the right website. So that uh, acquisition of uh, graphic recording company back in the uh, you know decades before yeah. seems to have paid off. Yeah, the, the HP is a big name in printers. Uh, so 2010... On August 6th, Mark Hurd resigns. He's actually forced to resign by the board of directors. Now, this is a case that is pretty odd. Uh, originally, there were allegations of sexual harassment brought up against Mark Hurd. Yes. Uh, the investigation that con- that followed seemed to say there were no actual implications of sexual harassment. However, there were some cases of Mark Hurd having... Uh, some expenses improperly billed to HP. Right. So it was, it was, you know, it was definitely something that Mark Hurd should not have done if he was improperly billing stuff to HP. Then that, that's a problem. You know, it needs to be resolved. But there were people who wondered if the board pushing him out of the company was in fact a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people, suggested that Mark Hurd was a very good leader. He had made a terrible mistake that needed to be addressed, but that he should not have been forced out of his position. Uh, one of those was uh, Larry Ellison, the CEO of Oracle, mm-hmm. who uh, who was also a personal friend of yeah. Mark Hurd, who then brought Mark Hurd over to become co-president of Oracle. You know, uh, Larry Ellison is always afraid to speak his mind and, and, and is yes, a shy and retiring guy. a shy, guy. shy man <laughs> who is not known for being incredibly blunt. No, um, not at all. So after Mark Hurd left, CFO Kathy Lesjak stepped in as an interim CEO until Leo Apotheker becomes the CEO and president. Yes. Now, uh, Leo Apotheker, of course, we'll talk about. Well, we might as well just go right into 2011, shall we? Yeah, why not? So 2011, last year, as of the recording of this podcast, another incredibly rough year for HP. Uh, back in March, Leo Apotheker announced that uh, there was going to be a big move to cloud-based services within HP and also said that WebOS, the um, – because, uh, oh, I didn't mention, in 2010, uh, HP bought Palm. Yes, the former manufacturer of PDAs. And, and, and the Palm Pre and, and, and the, other smartphones. And later smartphones. And yep. uh, th- that company, of course, we've talked about before. But um, if you haven't heard the podcast, in, in a nutshell, uh, as time wore on, their operating system for their smartphones fell out of favor. It was it was dated. Yeah, um, the, the Palm I- OS. Yes, the Palm OS was dated. And it really was better suited for PDAs than smartphones. Um, especially ones with newer technology and other newer devices were uh, showing it up. So they introduced this new operating system and new phones that would run on it. 
but by that point, it was kind of too late, and they started to founder. So yeah. HP picked them up in 2010, yeah, they, and we they, all thought, oh, they found somebody, we'll save them. Yeah, we thought, first, maybe HP's going to get into the smartphone market, but HP said, no, we're not really interested in that. We're looking at putting WebOS on tablets and other computers. Yes. Uh, but then like, the tablets never seemed to come to market. Uh, the the problem, well, there were many problems, and one of them being that Apple had such a strong hold on the tablet market that it was... You know, you, you really need to make something special if you wanted to go up against Apple. Uh, and then in the smartphone market, you had Apple and Android really yes. getting a lock on that consumer smartphone market. So it was a tough place for HP to be in, even uh, with the resources it had. So in March of 2011, uh, Apotheker said that uh, the WebOS operating system would be included on every HP computer going forward, and you could boot either in Windows or in WebOS. Which had uh, me scratching my head. Yeah. So this was March of 2011. Now, in April, there was a report that leaked. There's that leak problem again. Um, it was an earnings report that, that showed that the earnings HP had in the previous quarter were far below what they anticipated. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so HP was actually forced to hold its earnings meeting early because of that leaked report. That was sort of a damage control sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then shortly thereafter... Uh, Apotheker takes the stage and says that uh, they, they, you know, they're going to stop supporting WebOS. Yeah, um, start stop developing it. And, yeah, just going to set that aside. It's, they're no longer going to focus on developing WebOS. So, which was troubling because uh, they had come out with their own tablet, the and, touchpad, and the touchpad was highly anticipated. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it's supposed to release, and now they're saying that it's not going to. Yeah. So they get they said they're going to back off of WebOS and. They reveal that the company is considering spinning off its personal computer division. Yes. To, to make it its own company. So divesting itself of personal computers. And, and again, this, this made people question what is going on over at HP. Now remember, historically HP had very little to do with the consumer market, but in the last decade or so, it's really become a big player in the consumer space. So to get out of that just seemed complete, especially after the merger with Compaq, right? Because Compaq yeah. was all about consumer electronics too. Yeah. It seemed counterintuitive, and people were really wondering what was going on over at HP, including, as it turns out, the board of directors, who <laughs> did not really care for the backlash that came out after uh, Apotheker had said these things. Um, and so the board... Pushed Apotheker out of the role, so he left, and then they looked to a uh, a new person to come in and lead the company, which was uh, Meg Whitman, who was formerly the CEO of eBay. Yep, and that's where we stand today. Meg Whitman is currently the president and CEO of uh, of HP. Um, they are not, as far as we know, spinning off their personal computer business. They yep. they said back in October that they had reconsidered this and decided that was a poor decision. Uh, actually, they said that the, many of the things said on August 18th were bad decisions. That's what Meg Whitman said. Mm-hmm. Um, so in October, they announced that that's not going away. And in December of 2011, they said the company said that they were no longer going to just abandon WebOS. Rather, they were going to turn WebOS over to the open source community, mm-hmm. as well as continue development of WebOS its, uh, on their own. Yes. So they were also going to contribute to WebOS's development. They weren't just going to, you know, 
throw it out in the wild and drive away really fast. They were supposed to, supposedly they're going to continue working on it. So they've reversed a lot of their decisions. Now, whether or not that will be enough to convince people that HP has kind of refound its way, it's no longer sort of floundering around, that remains to be seen. Yes. Because if you look from the time, essentially, when Packard passed away moving forward, uh, the company seems to have really kind of just it's had some rough spots. Yes. You know, it's it's not that the company has completely lost its identity. I don't mean to suggest that. I just mean to say that it looks like once the founders were no longer an integral part of running this company, uh things got a little shaky. Well, it's hard when a company loses its um its founder partially because the founders um belief system is worked into the company to the point where Hewlett Packard I think really uh exhibited uh, Dave and Bill's DNA as far as yeah. what they really thought of as a, a good place to work and a good place to come up with new ideas. And, yeah. um, you know, when you have somebody new come in, they have their own concept. And, right. And, and a lot of people want to, uh, put their own mark on a company and say, well, I want this to be, I want HP in my years to be remembered for what I did with the company and not what Mr. Hewlett and Mr. Packard did, uh, back when well, they were in charge. Mission accomplished for some of those. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> Not necessarily the way they wanted to. But I think that's that's part of it as I think um you know now I'm I don't mean to read minds but I uh I think that that's that ha- that figures into it. You know, say, yeah. I want I want it to be special when I'm there, not just, you know, business as usual. Right. Um so yeah, it's been an interesting ride and uh it'll be very interesting to see what 2012 has in store with HP um and see where they go from here. Uh as we record this, it's the Friday before I fly off to the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, CES, out mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. And I am very curious to see what HP's presence is going to be like out there and to uh, kind of get a look around and, and just kind of get an idea, hear what the uh, chatter is on the show floor yeah. and see if it's more of a an optimistic discussion um, than it has been in years past. Yeah. Uh, you know, one one holds out hope because, yes. you know, this is a company that has a very long history and is, uh, you know, it's, even in its rough patches, it's it's been an important part of Silicon Valley. Uh, one other thing I was going to mention, I, I should have mentioned it during the Fiorina era. Um, you know, we had talked about how HP had really been about dedicated about taking care of its employees. Yes. That was one of the major criticisms directed toward Fiorina in that there were massive layoffs during her tenure as the yeah. president and CEO. Mm-hmm. More than 30,000 people lost their jobs during her her uh, time at HP. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty stark indicator that the the people who have come into HP after the founders may not have had the same philosophy at heart. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that has changed, and uh, we'll just keep our eyes on the company and see what happens from here on out. Meanwhile, if any of you have suggestions for topics that we should talk about on Tech Stuff, whether that's another company or whether it's an innovative person within the tech community or perhaps just some other topic in general, let us know. You can drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle is TechStuffHSW. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Work's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?